I'm here to introduce our next speaker. He is uh, Gino Gianola. He is uh, going to be speaking to us about ethics today. He has a very interesting background. He graduated from the MedEx Northwest Physician Assistant Program at the University of Washington in 1975. He was the first physician assistant to work at the National Institutes of Health. In 1992, he was offered full-time faculty position at the MedEx program here in Washington. And in the field of bioethics, he's been very active since around 2000. He's written many articles, textbook chapters, and is the editor for the Journal of American Association of Physician Assistants, P.A. Quandry's column on bioethics. So I would like for you to help me welcome Gino Gianola for your talk. Thank you. Good afternoon. No, it's still good morning. I can't see you all very well, but there are a few of you out there. Welcome to Seattle. Um, it's not always as sunny and nice as you have it here today. Um, I was born and raised here and probably have seen more rain um, per year than most. Um, you've all been sitting here listening to quantita or quantitative data about facts information. I'm going to use the other side of your brain. We're going to talk a little bit about philosophy, about uh, principles, about, um, about ethics. So we're going to talk about applied clinical ethics um, and a way to look at, eth at ethical problems. We have, we have had so many changes in the last hundred years in medicine. Um, changes, pharm pharmacologic changes, certainly changes um, using uh, computers as well. In 1972, Shana Alexander wrote an article in Life magazine about, and she called it the God Squad. Where did that come from? Well, just about that same time, there was a gentleman at this university who had created an AV shunt so that we could put people on dialysis machines. However, there weren't a lot of dialysis machines in existence. So the question was, who gets the dialysis? Um, because if people's kidneys are failing, those that don't get dialysis tend to die. So the King County Medical Society, which is a medical society for the Seattle area, the greater Seattle area, and the University of Washington, or I mean Swedish Hospital, um, started doing dialysis. And the, and the uh, medical society um, brought together some people to help make decisions on who received dialysis. Um, there was a minister, a lawyer, um, a housewife, all on this panel. They very, they um, documented what they did quite well. They did not make that public, but the documentation for how they made these decisions was well established. At that time, there was a senator in this state called Senator Magnuson who had heard about um, this dialysis problem and brought some legislation to bear that anybody who had kidney disease and needed dialysis, the federal government would pay for. And that's still true to today. 
But once the God Squad article came out in the magazine, it became nationally known. And uh, the president at the time decided to bring together a group of people to talk about how we make ethical decisions. Two of them were uh, Dr. Beecham and uh, Dr. Childress. One was a staff member of this committee and the other was on the committee. And as they listened to the discussions that went on in this bioethics committee, they noted that there was not a common language um, to discuss ethical issues, either across professions or even across a profession. So they um, put together um, a book and some concepts, which is the concepts of the principles of bio bioethics. How many of you know about the principle of Beecham and Childress's bioethics principles? of autonomy. Okay, well, we'll talk about that. So what I'm going to talk about in the next half hour, 40 minutes, is uh, the values of the uh, PA profession, a review of the four principles of bioethics, how to apply those four um, principles by using four topics that Al Johnson helped to uh, put together. We also have a uh, a ethics site that we've been working on for years at the University of Washington, which is a nice resource. And there's a couple of books um, that I'll talk about as well that are good resources. And also we'll have questions at the end. So the Code of Professional Ethics um, states, you know, the law describes the minimum standard of acceptable behavior and ethical principles delineate the highest moral standards of behavior. So if you break the law, you get a ticket, you go to jail. You break ethical principles, there's not so much of that. Um, often legal requirements and ethical expectations don't always agree. I'm in graduate school at the moment and just took a couple of classes in the law school. And even though the law describes a minimum standards, I'm now starting to understand all the issues of the regulations of the laws um, that that discuss the issues of, of ethics. So when you look at an ethical problem, the most important thing is to recognize it. If you can recognize it and, and put it in a sentence or two, it's much easier to decide what to do with it. Many times, one, it is very, very difficult to articulate what the ethical problem is. Once you have identified it, then you can break it down and look at components within uh, the dilemma and look for more information, identify, identify the legal problems, um, and then figure out if it can be resolved or not. Every ethical dilemma is contextual, kind of like patients. They're all different. Um, you may have ethical dilemmas that are the same, but the context around, the contextual issues around that um, are always different. So the four principles that Beecham and Childress talked about are autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. That's the common language that is now used if you look at almost any um, ethical principles of almost all, all health professions nursing, pharmacy, social work, medicine. Um, they talk about autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. 
Not all philosophers agree with this particular four principles, um, but philosophers don't agree on much of anything. So autonomy is derived from the Greek meaning uh, autos, meaning self, and nomos, meaning self-rule or self-governance. And patients have the right to make autonomous decisions or choices. And as PAs, we should respect those decision choices, even if we don't agree with them. But there is, um, but people to make those choices, they, they, there's some very important things they, that the patients need to know. So beneficence is the duty to assist persons in need to act in their best interest. Beneficence is an action, it's to do something. It's to assist, it's to um, act, and always in the best interest of the patient. So non-maleficence is, is the duty to refrain from causing harm um, and to refrain from placing unnecessary or uh, unacceptable burdens on patients. Also, you will notice in the, as the slides go on, there's gonna be a few misspellings and a few words left out. As I updated this last night about midnight, I didn't review it all that well. So justice is the fair and equitable distribution of burdens of beneficence within a community. And it's usually justice is discussed around the issues of, uh, of money, um, of distribution of, uh, of, of wealth. So now we're going to turn to figure out how you take those four principles and apply them to your practice. We all know how to do a history of present illness, onset, duration, location, things that make it better, things that make it worse. I think the, principle, the principles I'm going to, the topics I'm going to talk about now, if we collect the data on an ethical issue the same way, using the same questions, certainly we'll get different answers, but if we do it the same way every time, we will collect it, the, the data that is needed to make the analysis. So we'll move right on. And so to apply the principles, Al Johnson, who was a priest and then became a philosopher, uh, Dr. Winslade, a physician, and, uh, and a lawyer got together to discuss how to apply the principles. And they created this four topics approach to uh, addressing ethical dilemmas. Medical indications, we know that as providers pretty well. What's the patient's medical problem, diagnosis, and prognosis? What's the evidence base for um, this patient's problem? Can we identify it? And what is it going, what's the prognosis of this problem? Many times ethical dilemmas have more than one issue and it's important to call out those issues and ask the following questions for each of them. Does it fulfill any of the goals of medicine? And what's the likelihood of that happening? And if not, is the proposed treatment futile? I worked at the I worked at the bone marrow transplant unit at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center for a number of years, and one issue we, had, we dealt with was the issue of futility. Many of our patients at the time certainly were immune suppressed because they were having bone marrow transplants. But we found a number of folks, not a number, we found some people that had aspergillus pneumonia in their lung. 
and we would intubate them and found that none of the folks that we cared for that had aspergillus pneumonia after bone marrow transplant that were immunosuppressed survived. So the physicians I was working with decided to write an article around futility saying if one in a hundred people do not benefit from a treatment, it can be called futile. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and caused quite a bit of uh, pushback. But futility needs to be defined and to see if, and to be able to talk about medical indications and the treatments that are available. So patient preference, that's, this speaks of autonomy. What does the patient want? And does the patient have the knowledge and the capacity to decide? If not, who will decide for that patient? So many times people are unable to decide because of their age, because they're minors, because of their health condition. And so others need to help make that decision help them make that preference. When we think of patient preference, we also think, are the, are the patient's wishes being reflected in the process that is informed? Does the patient understand the information? And is the decision to have the, is the patient's preference voluntary? Or are there circumstances, contextual issues, that it may not be so voluntary. Quality of life, a much more difficult um, analysis, but describes the patient's quality of life in terms of the patient's terms. What is their quality of life? Um, the things that we might think of as not being a good quality of life in the perspective of the patient may be just a fine quality of life. So listening to the patients describe what they think is a good quality of life for themselves. And what is the patient's objective acceptance of a likely quality of life after a therapy? Um, if one is gonna propose a therapy, what, how do they look into the future for that quality of life? And do, do, you think, do they think they can accept that? And what are our views as providers on the issue of quality of life for our patients? And then the question is, is a quality of life less than minimal? Is a quality, is a qualitatively futile? Um, and that certainly can be asked if one is, has, is on a ventilator and has no um, brain function. Is that life minimal and is it qualitatively futile? Um, and that's a decision that certainly the patient can't make at the time, but their surrogates can, and certainly we as providers need to address that as well. So contextual features is everything that is not what I just talked about. So it's the social, legal, economic, and institutional circumstances in the case that can influence the decision of the uh, patient, or the contextual issues can 
be influenced by the decision. For example, the inability to pay for a treatment and inadequate social support. If we decide to do a therapy and send somebody home, is there adequate social support to let them have that therapy if they need home care? Um, that's another one of the contextual features we should look at. So how are we going to move, how are we going to do this? I would like to look at a case. So John's a 16-year-old fellow who demands that all of his moles be removed from his face, neck, and back. He's 16, so he's pretty self-conscious about um, others seeing these, these uh, moles. Then he really doesn't like to go to the beach, do those things. So he comes into you and he says, and you, well, you observe that he has several clinically benign compound and dermal nevi on his face, neck, and back. However, you think that the removal of these will cause some hypertrophic scarring, especially on his face. You explain to John that there is no medical indications to remove these moles. They are benign. Um, and you don't feel, you personally don't feel that it's necessary to, to remove them. John tells you this, if you do not get rid of these things now, I'll just find somebody else who will. Um, there certainly are enough dermatologists that he could go from one office to another and have, and see if somebody will remove them. John's parents have accompanied him and are in the waiting room and have talked to you and they feel conflicted. They're worried for John's happiness. They want him to be a happy 16-year-old, which sometimes is very difficult for 16-year-olds. And they want to support his wishes and his decisions. However, good, safe medical care and common sense really is also pulling at them. So what is John's medical problem, diagnosis and prognosis, as we look at the medical indications? So John has clinically benign compound dermal nevi, and, and from your experience and from evidence that you have garnered from the literature, the removal may cause the scarring at some of the sites where the nevi are present. So does it fulfill any of the goals of medicine? And with what likelihood? Is, is there medical indications for removal of the nevi? Are there, and medical indications, are there other therapeutic ways to address this as well? So patient preferences, we know what John wants. He asked for the moles to be removed. Um, and so does a 16-year-old have the knowledge and capacity to decide? Sixteen-year-olds, many of you have 16-year-olds or have interacted with 16-year-olds? 
One, two. Yeah, 16 year olds have both, both boys and young men and young women certainly cannot look into the future very well. Um, insurance companies, automobile insurance companies have, have figured that out because insurance rates don't go down until one is 20, 26, 25. They figured out that the brain is not connected well until one is in their mid-20s. So one at 16, it's very hard for them to look into the future um, and trying to figure out how they think is always a challenge. And parents usually have been with the, with the child much longer than the provider and will help and must help make those decisions. So describing John's quality of life, he believes his quality of life is negatively impacted by the presence of these moles. And he doesn't seem to be aware or acknowledge or know that, in fact, there may be some negative impact on his quality of life uh, from the surgery. So how should we perceive diminished quality of life that is anticipated in the future affect the current decisions? Can we make decisions of, of future outcomes um, at the present? So look, there are several fact and contextual features which takes on everything else. There are several uh, pieces of significant information within this, uh, within um, this case. Social, we look at the social, legal, economic, and institutional circumstances in the case, and John has a legal right to request the treatment. He has a moral right to request the treatment. However, he is a minor. Um, and minors uh, cannot sign informed consents. They can sign, uh, they can't sign informed consents and they cannot consent to invasive surgeries. So what influences his decision? That's part of contextual features as well. Well, we certainly know that peer pressure does. If you're 16 years old, you, you look at your peers and your and that pressure can be pretty, uh, is, is great, and it affects, it can well affect John's request um, to have this procedure. So it's fairly simple. as a 16-year-old making an informed decision for an elective invasive procedure. So John has multiple clinically benign nevi, if surgically removed, could have a negative effect. There's no medical indications that would warrant a surgical, there are no medical indications or data that says that uh, would warrant this surgical intervention. John is becoming autonomous, he's getting older. I mean, at 18 he will he will be able to sign and make decisions. So as one gets older, one can, uh, is learning how to make autonomous decisions. And in 
as one takes care of teenagers, as they progress, they have more and more input into their therapies and treatments, but he's still not yet at the age of majority. John's parents are his decision makers, and working with the PA can come to a suitable solution. So we have a 16-year-old who needs an invasive procedure, or not doesn't need it, who wants an invasive procedure, whose outcome certainly can be um, negative. So contextually, peer pressure in teens can be a tremendous factor in the decision they make. So in this case, finding a middle ground in the case might include an agreement to remove maybe one or two of the nevi and see the outcome and then make a decision about further procedures, taking some of those nevi off from the back. Um, other confounding factors with this solution will be, will insurance cover the excision for these nevi? And if not, can parents afford to um, pay for it. So that's certainly a confounding factor within this case. So as you can see that, that um, unlike quantitative data, qualitative information um, is harder to deal with. There are no sound, uh, there are no studies of specific ethical dilemmas there are, that you can necessarily follow. There are some principles, and there are cases that you can use, that the courts have addressed, that one can use. But um, using the principles and the, um, the principles and the uh, four topics I just talked about can help make that dis same decision, make a decision about how to, in fact, deal with an ethical case. I'm going to slip through these next ones. <laughs> Sorry. We're going to go to another case because I went a little quicker than I thought I would. Excuse my dog. Okay. Casey's a 20-year-old with a psoriasis who is in today to see you. And, make the, and I think you just had a discussion about psoriasis, yes? So, Casey says, my psoriasis is ruining my life. I flake skin everywhere. I cannot go anywhere. I can't meet new people or anything. My other dermatologist won't give me any, more, any steroids because she th worries about the side effects. And my liver uh, blood tests are too high from a for methotrexate anymore. So it looks from this statement that she's had methotrexate in the past, but certainly can't do it now. Phototherapy takes too much time. So I saw this commercial on TV for this stuff, and I think it's, I think it's a shot, and I'd like to try it. Let me show you on my laptop what that TV commercial is like. So the commercial shows a young woman in a small swimsuit running on the beach. And, at the, and as the sun sets, this young woman is in the arms of a young man. And they are hugging and, and as they watch the sunset. And a voiceover says, this medication may increase your risk of cancer. 
And that's all the, the commercial says. So looking, using the four topics of medical indications, uh, her, prog her, her problem is chronic severe psoriasis, and she's failed the methyltrexate, although with the last lecture, maybe there's some more things we can do for her. What does the patient want? Casey requests the new treatment. Does she have the knowledge and capacity to decide? Well, Casey is an age of majority, Casey has capacity, but does she have full knowledge of what this medication is? Casey considers her life of poor quality at the moment. I mean, she feels isolated and unable to socialize. Um, and I assume this is quite common with young women and young men with severe psoriasis. So the social, legal, and economic issues and circumstances in this case that can influence the decision, advertisers' influ influence on Casey's decision is great. Is Casey making an autonomous, informed decision? True autonomy, autonomous decisions are made without coercion or undue influence. Um, advertisers' goals are to induce consumers to purchase a product. And as you know better than I, vulnerable persons, especially those with disfiguring or unsightly dermatological conditions, may be unaware of the dangers of the advertised product. Um, the advertisement in this case does not appear to provide Casey with any complete information. So the PA in this case is not obliged to treat Casey with this medication. She requests until there's full disclosure of all the risks and benefits of the medication. She came in and didn't even know the name of the medication. I'm not sure um, that it was even clear from the commercial what medication she was requesting. Um, so I think the PA really needs to go over, one, identify what the medication is, and two, go over with her the, uh, the benefits and the risks of whatever that medication is. But that's one way, it's, as you look at contextual features of undue influence or influence that, uh, that makes decision-making for the patient difficult. So let's go back to those others I missed. I won't make all the noises again, but in conclusion, in medicine, science is moving very rapidly. Um, when I was at the NIH in 70, not 82, maybe it was 81, we gave the first interleukin-2 injection to a patient with melanoma. Um, the IL-2, I mean, the, the therapy really did remove all of, all of her melanoma from her, because it was metastasized in her lung and in other organs, it made it go away. We were pretty excited about that, but no other patient after that with melanoma had that same um, reaction or action. 
So science moves by rapidly, but as it moves forward, we need to consider the ethical issues in all of our decisions as we um, treat our patients. The brain there, they're actually doing some brain transplants on little mice these days, so that may happen to some of us. And of course, we have heart transplants that are very common today as well. Our bioethics website we have here at the, uh, here at the University of Washington is there. And I'll make these slides available to you all. Um, then they should be up on, a, on your, maybe your website so that you can actually see what the, uh, the website is. Uh, we've worked on it for the last 10 years. It's a great resource. Um, the clinical ethics book I was speaking of the seventh is in the seventh edition with Al Johnson, Mark Siegler, and Winslade, a philosopher, a lawyer, and a physician in one room writing a book. And they've done it for seven times. They've really written it seven times. The first little book that, I, that they published was very small that would fit in your pocket. Now it's much larger. Um, but it's a really nice resource um, to have in your library. And that's what the seventh edition looks like. I was trying to figure out what to talk about dermatology and ethics. So I did a literature search and this book popped up. It was actually published this year. Um, the two cases I, I was talking about actually came from this book. Uh, this society is mentioned in the book in, an, in a number of places. They talk about the uh, Society of Dermatologic PAs um, and the support that the folks, Lisa wrote this book, have for your society. So there's my dog. She's healthy, except when we watch baseball. But that really isn't a cigar, that's just her uh, chew stick. Anyway, you've all been sitting here quietly since 8 this morning. I'm glad I talked to you before lunch, because lunch will be up in just a few moments. But we'll go to some questions. I know this was quick, and I didn't go into a lot of detail, but this was a four-hour lecture we put into 45 minutes. So if you have any questions about ethics, principles, why you should even be bothered with it. I'll be happy to answer any. See, philosophy is difficult. There's never a direct answer. No virtual questions. All right. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. I know we don't have that much time to talk, but if you could comment on uh, if you see a connection between uh, healthcare reform in whatever form it takes and bioethics, especially as it relates to, to dermatology. I know that's kind of a broad subject, but. Well, healthcare reform, I guess, has been 
the Supreme Court said, yeah, you can go ahead and do it. Um, it certainly talks to the issue of, of justice, of just of distributive justice. Um, there are 50 million people going to be coming into the uh, health system that haven't been taken care of. And the question is, how do we pay for all of this? And who makes those decisions? And are procedures going to be reimbursed at the level they have been in the past? I certainly can ask, answer the question, but I there are certainly being, it is certainly being asked. And as the regulations are being written from, uh, from the law, I think the society should be at the table, the PA should be at the table, certainly physicians are going to be at the table, insurance companies are going to be at the table. Um, and the ethical question is, sh should we make sure that healthcare is available to everyone? And should we make sure, is, should every, everything be available to everyone? Should there be care, should there be Cadillac care for everyone? Or should there be minimal care for folks, at least uh, minimal care for folks to keep them healthy? But the workforce, there is, there are many, ethical questions as we debate and put the regulations together for health care reform. Next year at this time after the election, I'm sure you'll be, to, hopefully you're going to have a, a session just on this very issue. I haven't put you all to sleep, I hope. Well, should they have lunch? <laughs>